Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us for episode 428 with Ellen Rupel Shell. Ellen is a writer who has really done some time thinking, researching, exploring the nature of work, where it's going, how we experience it. So you'll get some cool thought-provoking tidbits, including one, why no employer could give you meaning, two, what people actually want in a job, and three, how and why to engage in job crafting. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced here, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep428. Now, here is Ellen's story. Ellen Rupel Shell is a correspondent for The Atlantic and co-directs the graduate program in science journalism at Boston University. She's written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Guardian, The Smithsonian, Slate, The LA Times, The Boston Globe, O, Scientific American, and Science, just about every cool place you'd want to write if you were a writer. So thanks to Ellen for hanging out and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here is Ellen. Ellen, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks for having me, Pete. I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, me too. Well, I'm excited to chat with you for numerous reasons. And one of them is you have such an impressive writing career in terms of, well, all of the cool places to write you've written. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> pretty much. So I, I wanted to hear what was one or two or three of your, your all-time favorite pieces and why? I've always liked writing for The Atlantic, which was my home for, for some time, which is, uh, for those of you listeners who don't know it, it, it's a magazine that used to come out of Boston, now comes out of Washington. And my favorite pieces for them usually involved issues of science and technology. And I recall one in particular I enjoyed writing, which was based in a Kashrai Micronesia, if you can believe that. Mm. It's a remote island. It took a very long time, almost two days to get there, going by way of Hawaii and Guam and then a puddle hopper to the small island. And I was reporting a piece about the fact that the folks on uh, Kashrai, Micronesia, show such a propensity toward obesity. Hmm. Okay. The, the entire island, I don't want to say everyone on the island, but the majority of people on the island are, are quite overweight. And I went there to write a piece about the biological basis of behavior. And the example I was using was obesity. And so it was a very interesting place to report and a very interesting piece to write. And then I went ahead and did a book on that topic. So that was a really fun and interesting story. 
story, but I've done other interesting pieces. I did the first, many years ago, I did the flight into the ozone hole and went down to Punta Arenas, Chile, the southernmost city on the planet, and reported from there about the this historic flight to find out what was causing the ozone hole, which was an amazing experience because the scientists there actually found the smoking gun. So that was a pretty cool project. I've been to Africa to report on malaria there, and I've just had such a fortunate, had many wonderful opportunities to write fascinating things, and people have been very generous in helping me out. So it's it's hard to pinpoint uh, what I enjoy doing most. I have to say the most challenging thing I've ever done is this book that we're about to talk about, the job and the future of work. That was really challenging. And what I enjoyed again about doing it was being able to talk to people all over the country and even in various countries around the world about an issue that I think presses very hard on on most of our minds these days. So that was also a terrific experience. Well, I'm excited to dig into it. And so well, why don't we just go right for the, the gold right away? Tell me, you said this is difficult. What was perhaps the most uh, surprising and fascinating thing you discovered when digging in and doing the work to research this book? Well, you know, I'll, let me say, I'll tell you why it was difficult. And in fact, I'll tell you, <laughs> frankly, that for a long time, I tried to avoid writing this book, but I decided I really couldn't avoid it. To answer your question about what was most surprising, I'd say, in reporting the book. Well, I went to Finland, and there I learned about the wife carrying championships. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which, by the way, Finland holds the world championship uh, record in wife carrying. I'd say that was the most surprising thing. And I actually, if you can go and look on, on YouTube and watch this, it's astonishing. It's a national sport. That is, you run, uh, tall men run with small wives on their backs uh, through obstacle courses. And it's quite an event. So, the most surprising thing was that, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But vis-a-vis, you know, the topic at hand, the work and its future in a time of radical change, as, as the title indicates, I'd say that one of the most interesting things that I discovered was that that no employer can gift us with meaningful work. Okay. I mean, the idea that's, that an employer or a job can gift us with meaning is a myth. And that making meaning from our work is is very much a do-it-yourself proposition. And that gave me a lot of food for thought. What does that mean? How does one make meaning of one's work? Why is it that an employer cannot make meaning for us? What are the various factors involved? And how do each of us make meaning in our own way? I mean, how does this work? All that was to me kind of a revelation and gave me food for thought, both as someone who works and someone who is a college professor and and teaches folks who will be working, are working, but will have the whole working life in front of them. And also as a parent, what do I tell my kids? So that I'd say was the most, one of the more important messages is of the book on a personal level. Well, that is a a juicy thesis statement there, and it really is pregnant with implication when it comes to taking that responsibility. And there may even be a temptation to say, no, 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 no. Some jobs certainly are intrinsically meaningful, and and mine ain't one of them. And so I'd love it if we could have a little uh, devil's advocate, if you will, for... So let's say, I'm just going to just try to imagine a job that seems to have a bunch of intrinsic meaning. Okay. I am responsible for determining 
how and where malaria mosquito prevention nets get placed, thereby saving many, many, many lives super cost effectively. Okay, so I've tried to put you on the spot here. So that strikes me as intrinsically meaningful, like, whoa, all right, people will, will live and die based on my decision and and we're helping a lot of people survive. So but I still would need to make my own meeting there. Pete, that's actually a pretty easy one. <laughs> All right. I, I must say, remember I told you uh, I wrote a cover story on malaria for the Atlantic years ago. Uh-huh. And I can tell you that uh, putting out those nets does not guarantee that anyone's going to use them. When I was in Africa, I found that they, in fact, didn't. They were too hot for many people. So the question would be, that: does that mean if you discovered that people were not using your nets, that you would no longer have me in your job? That's a bummer. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So so let's take a step back. I, I, you really stepped on it in that particular case. But I hear what you're saying. So you're saying some jobs are intrinsically meaningful. That means no matter who does them, they're meaningful. Well, I'll beg to differ on that. And I gave a very brief example in my book, which was my father. Right, My father was a pediatrician. And one cannot imagine someone thinking that a pediatrician wouldn't just find his work or her work just by its nature meaningful. I would say my father found his work useful okay. and worth doing because he did save lives and he did help kids. Uh, and he worked in the inner city where I grew up and he had a job that I think all of us would think of as worthwhile. But but he didn't, his meaning, what he took meaning from most was his gardening. Hmm. And yeah, he found that he didn't love people that much. He really liked plants. And his hobby was gardening. Uh, He had a rock garden. And that was something that he took great meaning from. His job, which he did well and he was assiduous about, was important to him. And he was the way he made his living. But the way he expressed himself and what he took most meaning from was his hobby. And I think that's true for many of us, that we are told we should make meaning of our work or our work should be meaningful. I found evidence that every companies from Walmart to uh, Apple were telling, recruiting people with the message, we will give you meaning. We will make meaning for you. And I agree that some Walmart greeters do find their work meaningful, but they find their work meaningful because they make it so, okay? Mm -hmm. Not because by nature, meaningful jobs. And so that's, I think that might seem like a minor distinction, but it's really not. And I think once you, once we all understand that we each make meaning in our own way and that our employer cannot gift us with this, that we have to do it in our own way. I think it's a great relief because some of us will not find meaning in our jobs. Our jobs will will want to do our jobs well. We'll take some satisfaction in our jobs. We'll make a living through our jobs, but we'll make meaning in other ways. And that's a great relief. I mentioned in the book that I wrote a little essay for The Atlantic about work, and I asked readers to respond. And I got a huge, <laughs> huge response to this, probably more a bigger response than I've gotten to anything I've ever written. And I, that actually didn't surprise me so much because, as I said before, I, I knew this was a topic on everyone's mind. But what did surprise me was how many of uh, these people were just starting out in the working world. They were recent, typically recent college graduates. And each of these recent college graduates, almost to a person, was quite dissatisfied with their job. 
And the reason they were was because they didn't find their jobs, quote, meaningful. And so what they were doing, many of them, was to work longer hours because they thought it was their failure that these jobs should be meaningful and they didn't understand why they weren't making meaning from them. So they worked longer hours. Of course, that contributed to a vicious cycle. They became even more dissatisfied and they were really frustrated. One solution to this is to look at your job as important and valid and worthwhile, but not the source, the central source of meaning in your life. And I think years ago, most people did regard their jobs in that way. But in recent years, certainly uh, since the the birth of uh, internet culture, we've been told that we should feel passionate about our jobs and we should make meaning from our jobs. And for many of us, that's very unrealistic. Well, so I'm intrigued. How does one go about making meaning, either in a job or outside a job? You said for many, it's unrealistic. How do you know if there's just no hope (laughs) for a given job? Yeah, no, let's be careful that there is hope because it's very hopeful to be able to go to a job each day for those of us uh, who work at home to tackle a job each day and take satisfaction out of simply solving a problem that this is something, and again, supporting a family or supporting oneself, these are very important things. These are critical things. So people who find it don't find, they don't find passion through their work can still find satisfaction through their work, especially if they don't set themselves up and berate themselves because they don't feel passionate about their jobs. Okay. But another thing to keep in mind is I think there's this misimpression that we all require the same things on the job. In fact, I won't mention any names, but there's this idea that we all seek challenge on the job and novelty on the job. This whole idea of moving fast and breaking things, you know, the Silicon Valley idea. Actually, that's not the way most of us make meaning from our job. Some of us do, but most of us don't. Some of us really desire craftsmanship and mastery in our job. So we go to work each day and we don't mind doing the same, pretty much the same thing as long as we can master it. And the example I use in the book is, for example, a glassier, someone who who actually uh, makes windows and feels very strongly that he does an excellent job of glazing windows, making windows. This is his thing. He doesn't look for novelty or, or real challenge. He's mastered this, and he feels on top of it, and he takes great satisfaction in that mastery. Okay, so that's one kind of job. Uh, coders sometimes, the people who do computer coding, this is what they seek. Sometimes they seek challenge, but sometimes they seek mastery. You know, just being able to nail it every single time they do it. And others of us seek kinship on the job. You know, we want to we think of our work family, uh, whether it's a remote work family or a literal family we see at the office or in the workplace every day. Police officers, firemen, typically people who work in hospital emergency rooms, oftentimes this is a priority for them. They seek kinship, and it's very, very important to them that this is what they look for in a work, a job situation. So I make the point in the book that there's this myth that everybody needs to be challenged, everybody needs novelty, everybody's working for rewards, immediate rewards. This is not true. Some people do, and some people don't. I'd love it if maybe you could flesh out that uh, menu, if you will, of job happiness drivers, if you will. So we got novelty, challenge, mastery, kinship. 
immediate rewards, any other ones that seem to really do the trick for certain segments of workers? Well, those are the major ones. And most of us, this is going to not sit well with, with many of your listeners, but most of us really want uh, on our jobs is stability. And that sounds strange in an era when everybody is doing the, you know, the gig job and, and we get the impression that people are moving from job to job. In fact, especially millennials, millennials who now constitute the largest segment of the workforce really, really value a stability. In, in a job. Perhaps that is because it becomes scarcer than it once was. But getting up in the morning and knowing that you have a job is for most people the priority, the number one priority. And again, that people don't think that necessarily, but that is the case. So everything else being equal, that's the one. More than a better salary, more than, than other things, stability is the number one priority. Interesting. So you said that that is the number one, even if they don't think it is. How do you reach that determination? I talk again, as I mentioned earlier, I had a lot of help. I interviewed hundreds of people for this book, management scholars, social scientists, psychologists, historians. And this comes thanks to their research, which I've cited, of course, and credited in the book. Intriguing. Okay. Well, so then let's say that here I am. I want to make some meaning. I accept that I got to do it myself. So what does that do and look like? Well, again, that varies tremendously with the kind of job you have and the kind of person you are, most essentially the kind of person you are. So I mentioned I, I interviewed a lot of social scientists and management scholars. And among these was a wonderful scholar at, at Yale University. Her name is uh, Amy Rosniewski. And She's done some amazing work on work and jobs. And one of her early pieces of work, one of her early studies, was of hospital cleaners. Now, that sounds odd, custodians in in a hospital. And she found that interviewing these custodians, she found that uh, some custodians described their work as just a job, as you would expect. I mean, they cleaned hospital rooms, right? So that sounds like, you know, just a job. But there was a subset who described their work as a calling Okay, Mm -hmm. a calling. That's a very high bar to describe your work as a calling. We generally associate that with the clergy or or things like that. But these folks describe it as a calling. So she wanted to know why. And so she drilled into that. And what she found is in this subgroup of janitors or custodians, they thought of themselves as healers. Okay, they worked in a hospital and they would kind of keep an eye on the patients. They would notify uh, the medical staff if they saw problems. If they could take a break, they would sit by the bedside and console someone who was missing a relative or who was not feeling well. They really took a role. They saw themselves as healers. And uh, Rosniewski explained to me that when the hospital found out about this, they warned the custodians off and told them not to do this because this was not part of their job description. And not to do what specifically? Not to act as healers. Yeah, stick to your cleaning, right? Stick to your cleaning. And because there was no impact on the bottom line. In other words, they were not doing that, was not making, they saw this as as kind of a waste of time and they didn't want their, their custodial staff to do that. Okay. And so what Rosniewski explained to me was that what these janitors were doing was crafting job crafting, what she calls job crafting. So they took their job and they carved out a piece of it that to them made it meaningful for them. Okay. And they focused on that part that made it meaningful for them. And so it made them, you know, 
much more satisfied with their work, much better workers, by the way. They stayed longer, much less turnover. And so that is something that she then expanded to look at other workers in other arenas and found out that one way to make meaning of your work is to find the part of your work that you find the most meaningful and find a way to focus on that as much as you can without, obviously, without costing your employer in the long run, right? So you take the part about what, you know, where you feel a certain sense of mastery or you feel a certain sense of purpose and focus on that and orient your job in that way. So that's one way to look at it. And I suppose we could talk about almost any job category and find out how an individual could make the most of the job that they have. Yeah, that does get the wheels turning. Well, could you share maybe some other actionable prescriptions in terms of if, if you're a professional seeking to flourish at work and enjoy it all the more and, and perform all the better? What are some other things you recommend they do? Well, okay, so my book is not a self-help book. Okay. Right. And I didn't do, I don't make recommendations to people generally. I wrote this book to as food for thought and also to look at some myths about work and what we need as a society, what we should prioritize. Uh, So I'm loathe to give advice. There are so many books on uh, self-help books in this arena that would do a much better job than I would. So I really, I don't want to get into that too much. Well, maybe let's focus in on some myths in terms of, okay, you might believe this and it is false and that could lead you to make some suboptimal decisions. So you're not quite, you know, giving a prescriptive don't, but you are highlighting a uh, potential errors that can feed the decision-making process. So, so what are some key myths that need to be busted? Oh my gosh, <laughs> there are so many. So on an individual level, I almost early on in the book, I talk about the problem of people having to convey a personal chemistry that aligns with their employer's expectations. And I compare Israel, which I have visited, and and the United States, and how we differ, and these two countries differ in their approach to hiring individuals, especially knowledge workers. And again, this is a generalization, um, and not everyone has had this experience, okay? But in the United States, there's a push toward selling yourself as a person, as a total person to employers. You need to be a cultural fit with the company. We throw around words like that. And the chemistry has to be right. We throw around words like that. In Israel, your skill set is what they're looking for. They More commonly, they're looking for, can you do the job? So if you don't get the job, it means they don't like your skill set. And that's not so personal right? Mm -hmm. In the United States, if you don't get the job, it means your chemistry was bad, okay? That you couldn't sell yourself well enough, that there's something wrong with you. Psychologically, that's very damaging, okay? So I think when people are seeking a, a job or seeking a promotion or seeking, they need to think about really this expectation and find some way to arm themselves against it. Okay, so the idea of cultural fit and aligning one's personal chemistry with the interviewer or the employer um, is something I really address in the book, and I warn against, both for individual sanity, okay, but also (laughs) because it isn't good for employers, because too often employers look for people who look like themselves, 
right? Right. That, and that's something that those many of your listeners probably already know. That you know, you look for someone who's a lot like you. And in fact, in a study of law firms and investment banks, the most likely reason someone would be hired was because he or she shared the same leisure interests as the person interviewing them. Wow. Yeah. That's the number one the predictor. The number one predictor. So if you play squash <laughs> and the person who interviewed you plays football, that's not a match. Yeah. So Just like learn their hobbies in advance and then do it for like a weekend. <laughs> so you exactly. can talk about it. <laughs> exactly. But you can see the implicit classism in this as well, right? And one of the things they found out is if you played football in college and they played squash, that's not good because that implies well, you're a football player. What does that say about you? Right. And they're a squash player. What does that say about them? So that's a problem because you're hiring yourself and that doesn't lead to diversity or heterogeneity in the workplace. And heterogeneity is, is a good thing in the workplace. You want a, diff- a lot of different viewpoints, right? Yeah. Well, that's great. So that's just something to, to think about on a personal level, right? Well, that's juicy. Could you bust another myth for us? That was fun. Like I said, there's so many myths. So another one that I really tackle in this book, and some of your readers might have seen some of my op-eds on this because it it really got my goat, is the whole idea of the skills shortage in the United States. As if people in, you know, Americans don't have the skills to do 21st century jobs or can't acquire the skills quickly to do 21st century jobs. And I looked into this quite quite closely and did a ton of, of research on it and, and found out that, in fact, there really is not a skills shortage in the United States. There Certainly, there are times when it's hard to find a particular employer, a employee for a particular position in a particular place, okay? That certainly happens, no question about that. But an overall skills shortage does not exist. And so what I warn against is the idea of society, and I mean by that I mean taxpayers, paying for training, jobs training, for individuals so they're just in time ready uh, for a particular employer. That is not an effective way to produce workers of the future. Okay, it's not. If if an employer has a particular skill and can't find that they need and, and can't find someone to fill that position, it's most likely that they can hire someone close enough and train that person fairly quickly. Is what we used to do not so long ago. So the idea that you know we have to seek uh, employees from from other nations or we have to train up a workforce in a particular way, I did not find evidence of that. What I did find evidence of is that there are unfortunately too many kids in the U.S. who are not getting basic education, right? So they're not learning basic what we call basic analytic skills. That is, you know being able to solve basic logical problems, make a logical argument, do basic communications, arithmetic, that kind of thing. There's, there's no question there's, there's a problem. But in terms of advanced skills and a shortage of advanced skills, that I did not see. Oh, interesting. So to summarize, it sounds like you found that we have a bit of a shortage of some foundational, fundamental, critical skills 
but uh, not so much uh, a skills gap on the advanced technical skills like Python or, uh, you know, particular, you know, language or, or technology. Right, right. I mean, anyone can learn Python who has who has basic training in understanding computer languages and, and has the basic mathematical background and has had that exposure, we can train, we can be trained in these things. And, and we should be because, as you know, computer languages change fairly quickly. So that's not a problem. You know, the idea that you demand that someone's a Python expert versus another kind of individual who's also worked in the computer industry is a little questionable, right? Now, obviously, there's always a shortage of the best and the brightest, right? The top, top talent. But that's sort of like saying there's a shortage of the best NBA basketball players, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So to get that magical basketball player, you may in fact have to search the globe, you know, or at least, at least the country, but that doesn't mean we need to train up a whole lot more basketball players. Yeah. Right. It just means that those, the best can call their own shots and they will be rewarded for what they have to offer. But that does not mean that we need to be training and taxpayers need to pay for the training of these basketball players. Right. Got it. Well, Ellen, uh, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. (laughs) I think we've had a pretty good conversation, Pete. What do you think? Oh yes. It's been fun. I mean, I think we could go long, long time, but I want to respect our our window. (laughs) Absolutely. So could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I love Oscar Wilde, as do many people. And he has this great quote, be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. Yeah. (laughs) Have you heard that one before? That is fun. Yeah. I love that one. So that's a quote. Yes, for a quote. So I I do try to be myself and I encourage everyone else to be. Mm -hmm. So what other questions do you have? And how about a favorite book? Well, I'm a big fan of Edith Wharton, and I love, I love, love, love Age of Innocence, which is her masterpiece, I think. So it's kind of uh, an indictment of of society at the time for uh, being estranged from its culture, right? And, uh, you know, I think we have a lot to learn today uh, from that. Being estranged from culture and being focused on a sort of material world uh, can be quite problematic. So I I think uh, Age of Innocence, I would have to say. Well, thank you. And how about a favorite tool, something that helps you be awesome at your job? Gosh, I'd have to say my bicycle pump. Hmm. I love riding bikes and I make very good use of, I, I ride on really rough roads. And so I'm in, I find myself inflating my bicycle tires quite a bit. Oh, sure. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Where would I point them? Well, I do have a website and uh, I probably should do a better job of maintaining it. It's ellenshell.com, ellenshell.com. So if they want to, they can do that. I also teach at Boston University and so naturally, I have one of those edu emails. So it's eshell at bu dot edu. So if they have anything they want to share, I'm happy to hear it. Oh, great. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs. Don't forget the power of contemplation, okay? Getting away uh, from the team and thinking quietly on your own, because that's often when people accomplish the most. And I think there's an overemphasis on teamwork 
working on your own, often in a quiet place, it can often be your most productive experience. Well, Ellen, this has been a real treat. Thanks so much. And, and good luck with your teaching and your writing and your travels and adventures. Oh, uh, thanks. And I think we've mentioned the book, right? Absolutely. The Job, Work and Its Future in a Time of Radical Change. We sure did. <laughs> thanks a lot, Pete. It was really fun. I've been really chewing on Ellen's distinction between, you know, being satisfied and craftsmanship versus passion. And in particular, I'm thinking about my plumber, Brian, who does a fine job. And we've spent some quality time together today as I'm recording these words. And I've heard him say on a number of occasions when he revisits some previous piping work that uh, he has done, he admires it and goes, mm, I'm in love with that work. And it looks pretty sharp. If I were to take a photo, it would, it would look good. And it's getting the job done a little bit better than before. We currently have a whole home water filter situation that may be collecting some sediment, which is reducing the pressure, but uh, we're on the case and we're going to resolve that. It's not Brian's fault. Anyway, I thought that was interesting how he looks at and admires what he's done before and says, mm, I'm in love with that work. And sometimes he looks at the work of other plumbers. I see this all the time with the renovation professionals. And he goes, see, you see that? They're taking shortcuts. They're cutting corners. Why, why is there just a whole lot of that purple adhesive there with those pipe junctions? You know, why isn't this sort of tilting downward instead of flat? That's going to cause you some problems. You know, he's going through all these things in terms of folks who are taking shortcuts and going too fast. And, you know, this isn't the great work. It'll work, you know, for now, but you might run into problems because of this or that, you know, those sorts of things. So I think that's a great example of satisfaction because he's saying, I'm in love with that work. He feels some pride in the craftsmanship he has displayed in making those pipes go just the way they're going. But at the same time, when I asked how to get into plumbing, he didn't say it's always been my childhood dream or passion. You know, he needed some money. He started doing it and then he was enjoying the craftsmanship and enjoying having satisfaction associated with doing a fine job. And he certainly does fine financially, you know, based on what I'm paying and has got good prospects for the future, according to folks like Mike Rao and, and you know, Dirty Jobs and, and all the projections there. So anywho, I don't think Brian is telling his buds with great excitement afterwards. Uh, you wouldn't believe what I got to do in this home. We did blah, 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 and installed a whole home water filter. And d -d 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 -d. I don't think that's happening, but he can look at what he's done and say, mm, I feel good about what I have crafted there. So anyway, if that puts a little bit of a, a visual example on it, hope it's handy. And again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we referenced are over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F428. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest. It's Alden Mills. We finally got a Navy SEAL on the show. Yeah, it, it took some doing, but we, we got one. So he is talking about caring and how it makes a world difference, which is fun to hear from a hardcore military dude who may or may not have, have killed some people and blown some things up, saying that the key to Navy SEALs and others is caring. So that's a good one. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. 
If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.